worst parenting idea ever coming up. Greetings, salutations. It's the Bitterness and Rage Show. I am Rob, your king of bitterness, your emperor of rage, and welcome everyone, one and all, to the now firmly ensconced on iTunes Bitterness and Rage Show. That's right, folks. I am now on iTunes. You can search for the Bitterness and Rage Show. Subscribe. Leave a nice comment. It is now easier than ever to find this little piece of audio goodness that we have. So in addition to iTunes, you can always, always reach out and touch the Bitterness and Rage show on your Twitter boxes, at Bitter and Rage is the handle, bitternessandrage at gmail.com if you've got a question, a complaint, comment, concern, criticism, whatever, whatever it is that you want, you can email me now. Well, not right now, because you're listening to the podcast. But when you're done listening, um, then you can email me. All right, I want to start off today's show, and it's a big one today, folks, another elephantitis-sized show with, as I referenced at the beginning of the uh, the musical introduction, the worst parenting idea ever. And I'm referring, of course, to Binkies pacifiers, that which we give our children to stop them from screaming so they can simulate the sucking that gives them so much joy and so much comfort. And let's face it, who doesn't get joy and comfort from that? The um, the worst parenting idea is what happens when you're out in a boot with Junior and he drops his pacifier and that's all you got. You don't have any more with you. You're in the mall and you've only got the one pacifier, God help you. So what do you do? Then apparently, lots of parents, um, when the binky has been dropped, they pick it up and, um, how shall I put this? They clean it themselves by sucking on it. Mm -mm, That's good. Now you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, that is horrible. What kind of a sick human being would do that? Well, I'll tell you what kind of sick human being would do that. And what kind of sick human being supports that? The journal Pediatrics, which is published by the American Association of Pediatrics, did a study on parents that uh, suck clean their children's pacifiers and found that um, not all microbes, not all bacteria that they transfer over to their children are bad things. That the foreign bacteria given to young junior may actually have positive effects to it. They brought children between the ages of 18 and 36 months, the typical pacifier audience, in for allergy testing. And I'm quoting now from the study, at the first visit, 46 of them had eczema and 10 had asthma symptoms. Kids whose pacifiers had been sucked on by parents were 63% less likely to have eczema at 18 months and 88% less likely to have asthma compared to the children of parents who didn't use that cleaning technique. Okay, so this is a study that says it's okay if mom and dad stick the pacifier into their mouths and clean it. Um, Now, you're probably horrified and perhaps even finding out why it is you even bother to turn this little podcast on to find out such horrifyingly awful news. But wait, there's more. The American Dental Association, I guess the voice of reason in this little 
Pacifier play that we're doing says that saliva in the adult mouths can lead to early tooth decay if it gets into the mouths of our little kids, even if their teeth have just begun to erupt. I'm quoting the word erupt. That can happen as early as four months. So, uh, binky washer beware. Um, yeah, so you parents out there make your own decisions as to how you're going to clean your children's pacifier. My feeling is this. It falls on the ground in the mall, at the park, out and about. Probably a good idea just to leave it. Or here's a nutty idea. Pack some extras in the diaper bag. Okay, um, let us seamlessly transition from uh, pacifiers and sucking to something else that sucks these days, and that is the National Football League and their approach to discipline. I feel like we do this every podcast, but um, thankfully the NFL is providing me with hours and hours of material. I'd like to uh, direct your attention to one Vontez Perfect. It's a great name, Vontez Perfect, of your Cincinnati Bengals, who in a game against the Carolina Panthers, viciously and with audio, audio, video evidence, probably audio evidence too, but video evidence, went after the ankles of one Greg Olson, tight end, one of the best in the league, and a little quarterback, an unknown quarterback by the name of Cam Newton. Yes, that Cam Newton, one of the faces of the National Football League, viciously going after uh, their ankles, twisting ankles like he was trying to take the bottle off some bottle of soda. Great analogy there, don't you think? The bottle off a bottle of soda. Um, Now, the National Football League, the Shield, the Goodell gang, decided that that penalty or that transgression was only worth, I think, if I'm not mistaken... A $25,000 fine, there's no suspensions, none of that, no no public apology, no hand-wringing, no hypocrisy of outrage, none of that. But, again, I hear this, and my first response, my first instinct is, why, again, does the NFL say to its patrons, its viewers, its fans, if you will that they care more about their image to outsiders than they do about their own players. And yet, time and again, we hear the NFL is dedicated to player safety all the way down the line to peewee and Pop Warner football. But how can they say that they're concerned about player safety when they have these types of events that happen and the punishment is almost nothing? I mean, $25,000 to any NFL player... It's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. And I don't want to get into another referendum on the penalties for what's happening to Adrian Peterson and to Ray Rice with the child abuse and the domestic violence and all these other allegations and lifetime bans and indefinite suspensions. Oy. I mean, we, we tackled that and beat that one to death already, beat that dead horse, and now I'm really sorry that I made that analogy but I understand what the NFL is doing in terms of how it appears to certain demographics and how it appears to its its audience in general. But you allow a thug like Brandon Merriweather to keep using himself as a missile, launching himself at players' heads, and he keeps coming back. Game here, two games there, a few shekels out of his pocket in fines. And then with Mr. Perfect... 
$25,000 for trying to maim and perhaps cost a few games to arguably one of the faces of the National Football League, one of the young guns of the National Football League, Cam Newton, and a pretty good tight end at, uh, in Greg Olson. You just let him walk with a minor penalty, a minor fine, not even a six-digit fine. He's a five-digiter, and I don't get it. I don't understand what the priority is. I mean, yes, it's important for the National Football League to maintain um, or to try to rehabilitate its image because you want everyone to come in under the tent that is the National Football League. But your players, the product that we, we sports fans, we curious onlookers are coming to see, that product's being harmed by the play on the field. And I'm not just talking about bad games, blowout games, boring games. I'm talking about players that time and time again, their modus operandi is to hurt other players. And the NFL says, you know, that's just boys being boys. Here's a $25,000 fine. If you're really bad, here's a one-game suspension. Am I saying that what happens on the field is more important than what happens off the field? That the off-field reputation is more important? Or less important than the on-field reputation? No, I think they're both equal. I think you have to have an, a good image. You have to rehabilitate an image. You have to say to people who are shying away from the NFL, come back. Come back. I, I, I'm embracing you with open arms. Please come back and join us under the tent. But what's happening on the field, you have to say to your players, you have to say to the union, we respect you and we want to protect you from the criminal element within our own game. When I say criminal, I don't mean criminal against the law. I mean criminal the way they play the game. There's no room for that kind of thuggery. It doesn't even make for a great video. doesn't make for great highlights on sports shows. It's just wrong. Now, what is the NFL going to do when someone like this costs them the career of one of their biggest and brightest players, one of their biggest and brightest stars? So whenever the NFL comes out and says... And again, this is me accusing them of being hypocritical. When they come out and say that we're concerned about player safety, you're not as concerned as you say you are. The penalties that you mete out do not suggest to me that you are all that concerned about your player safety. Very concerned are you when backed into a corner about how you look to your female viewers and you know to your viewers in general. But when it comes right down to it, the easiest reprimands and the easiest penalties that would be against your own players for on-the-field conduct, you come up woefully, woefully short. Now, here's something that isn't woefully short, saying it doesn't suck. My next guest, I'm so giddy about my next guest that I'm going to not only stand up, but I'm actually going to turn down the music that you're listening to underneath this fine audio program uh, so we can get the full, full benefit of this man. I am talking about Yahoo Sports Radio's own Sean Salisbury. Ten years professional football, including eight in the National Football League. He is currently the host of Yahoo Sports Radio's Prime Cut with John Granado. You can hear him 3 to 7 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday nationally. He is also the Houston Texans post-game live host on CSN Houston. He's on ESPN 97.5 in Houston doing the midday show. The man is everywhere. And if you want to contact him, you can follow him on Twitter, at Sean Unfiltered. 
Believe me, folks, it's worth the time. Go look them up on your Twitter boxes and give them a follow. It's well worth it. Welcome, Sean. How are you today? I'm doing great, bud. How are you? I'm fine. Me on. Uh, no problem. Thanks for being on. I have I had a whole lot of NFL stuff to talk about, all these notes. But then yesterday, the Percy Harvin trade happened, and I figured we should lead things off with that. Um, let me just ask you this. This seemed to come out of the blue. Why now? Why trade Percy Harvin? Well, well he's a, a bad person in the locker room. And then he gets in a fight with Golden Tate before. There's been rumors that uh, they got in a fight. Uh, and some of those rumors have been confirmed by a few people extra that he and Golden Tate got in a fight before the Super Bowl. And then Wilson and him almost you know, got into it. That's, that's one of the reports. Um, he, he's had trouble with teammates. And he's had trouble, he's been an off-the-field trouble guy when it comes to, when I say off-the-field, just, number one, on the field, but Hurt can't stay, can't stay on the field. Second, when he is on the field this year, he's been very non-productive. I know he had three touchdowns called back penalty, but other than that, he's making too much money per catch. <laughs> he's, not, he's not producing a lot, but there's not been a real good teammate in the locker room. And when, those, when those type of reports are confirmed, when it came down on my show, the first thing that came in, you don't trade great players or great talent, should I say. Right. Then just because after you've given up a first and a couple of other big, you know, high draft picks for a guy, and two years later or a year and a half later, say we're done with him. Don't just do that if he's not producing well on the field for a year or for a few weeks or for a couple of months. You do that when that guy's there's deeper issues. And judging from these Golden Cave reports and Super Bowl reports and the run ins he's had with Doug Baldwin. Uh, this preseason, this is supposedly, it's just one after the other that the Seattle Seahawks are smart. He feels good, forget it. Get rid of him in front offices. He's more, he's more trouble than he's worth. Right. And the New York Jets are getting a headache. The New York Jets are getting a, a talented player who you don't know week to week if he's going to be on the field. And you're getting a guy who more than likely is going to create trouble in a locker room that already has trouble how it is. So I don't think it's a big loss for the Seahawks. An explosive talent, yes explosive personality and an explosively, you know, uh, should we say tip of the iceberg or getting close or volcano-ish personality in the locker room that uh, seems to create a lot of problems for teammates and they're sick of it and I don't blame the Seahawks. They got too much good stuff going on right. to deal with that. He, he's got a one in six personality. That's about what Percy Harvin is so, in the locker room. So this, was, this is no real surprise to anyone. I don't think so. I mean, I think when it first came down, Seahawks fans, people were like, oh, my gosh, what happened? And then as you start, you start to uncover the, the, what he is, and he's been a headache, you know, he's been a headache in Florida, he was in Florida there, and Minnesota was a bit of a headache, and, you know, the Seahawks are too good. They right. don't need it. Right. They've proven that they can win. <laughs> he's not the reason they won the Super Bowl. Right. He's not the reason they're a great team. He was a piece of a puzzle, a talented piece, but when, you're, when, when the headache becomes bigger, than the production, time to get rid of them. So I don't think a lot of people around the locker room are that surprised. I think fans that, 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 that you know, they're in the stands and life is telling like, why? Why would you do it? Until they get the real deep uh, insight right. and, and realize if he's not a great teammate to have around, don't keep him around. Let him go be somebody else's headache. Right. He had, he had very limited utility with the Seahawks. So would you say that the Seahawks are the winner in this trade as opposed to the Jets? No, 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 not even close. And you know what? I'd have detected. They'd have been the winner if they'd have gotten rid of him for a six-pack of beer and apple and a roadmap. 
Well, they still would have been the winners in that case. All right, well, let's let's move on then to the uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Let's move on from dysfunction with the Jets to a very functioning team with Dallas. Now, when I was on your show a couple months ago, I now famously said that, that they were when Brandon Whedon started away from being last in the NFC East. Now look at them, 5-1, and one, beating the Seahawks at home. To what do you attribute the rebirth, the renaissance, I guess, of the Dallas Cowboys? And don't don't feel bad. Trust me, we all felt the same way about the Cowboys. I've never seen going into the season. I've never seen a team make a transformation from being laughed at in the middle of the summer to being applauded and cheered this fast when we never expected anything. When we thought, well, what's the major things that have been done since July? Well, as a town, not much. They lost players and injuries, and you know, with, with Sean Lee and Demarcus Winter gone, you're thinking, well. Tony Rumble coming off surgery. There's no way. A whole bunch of enemies on defense now. Mo Claiborne hurt. What are they going to do? We expect them to be a, about a 4-12, and 5-11 team. Well, what they've done is, is, is not listen to what we have to say. They've thought about their business. Rod Marinelli, who's the defensive coordinator now, is probably the assistant coach of the year right now. They have made Tony Rumble Robin instead of Batman which is a good thing. He's more he's so much more efficient now where he doesn't have to make every play, or at least think he doesn't. And when he doesn't have to make every play, he's able to make them. He knows how to play simple, boring football now, which is I like in my quarterbacks. And they've got a full-grown man running the football on the best offensive line in the league. So neurophysical, which in the last, I've been in Dallas and watching this team for the last decade and a half, do be dysfunctional on the field always find about six or eight minutes where they screw it up and weren't physical and quite frankly weren't very good under pressure as a team. Well, this year they're great under pressure. They dominate the line of scrimmage and they're as physical as any team at the line of scrimmage in the league. Defensively, they're not out of position. They're not missing tackles. They're not unsound. They're making plays and it's amazing. Now, can it continue? I think it can. So from what I've seen, got to hope Murray stays healthy and these things continue to go well, but to go into Seattle and do what they did to them and beat them at their own game and run the football and hit them in the mouth, I attribute the fact very simple. You don't turn it over, you play physical football, and their defense is overachieving, and if it's an overachieve for a full, full season, God bless them. But they're taking a backseat to nobody because they're doing, they're staying committed to the run, right. staying committed to doing it the right way instead of having to have a quarterback make every play. And, I, uh, and it seems like a much more unselfish team this year. I'm right. impressed with the Dallas Cowboys. They're going to give the East all they can handle. All right, so so Demarco Murray then would be would be Batman. My thing is, there it looks like they're trying to turn Demarco Murray into Earl Campbell um, by just feeding him the ball and feeding him the ball and feeding him the ball. And I don't know if he can last the whole season. But with the defense overachieving and Demarco Murray as Batman, do you see them continuing this run all the way to the end to an yeah, NFC East crown? Yeah, that's a great question. I think he continue that, or if he can stay healthy now. When does it when does the injury, I mean, when does the, the punishment start to take its toll? I don't know. You know, sometimes we've seen these seasons where a guy just keeps running it and running it. Now, I don't know five years from now where DeMarco Murray's going to be. How many hits the guy can take, but I know one thing. He runs hard. He runs downhill. He runs physical. And if I'm a coach, no offense, I really don't care about six years from now. I want DeMarco Murray to produce for me now. Right. And he's doing it. This guy, you know, he's got to stop laying the ball on the ground. That's his only, been his only weakness this year, but I'm telling you. I don't know if you could get into a couple blowout games where you can run a few teams that teams out of the gym and get him out on the sidelines in the third quarter. That'll help. Right, right now, right now, no sense. I can't worry though. 
And as a coach on the sideline, Brooks, you never think, let's see, how many carries does Marco have? 18? Who? Right. I don't want to give him the 25 carries, so let's not give it to him anymore. We're in a six-point game. You don't think like that. You think, how am I going to win? And right. full-grown man carrying the ball, well, then that's what we're going to do. But did you take the toll? But if the Cowboys can get by without them taking their toll too much this year, you keep feeding the guy the ball, you hope you get a few blowout games, you get a bye week to get him right. But you know what? As good as he is right now, great football players don't want to stand on the sideline. They want to keep carrying it and keep playing. And aside from Philip Rivers right now, the MVP of the league resides in Dallas, and his name is DeMarco Murray, and he is Batman. Right. If you're if you're Jason Garrett clinging to that job by your fingernails, the last thing you want to do is say, "Well, I need to save him for next year." Because for Garrett, there may not be a next year. Is this yeah. this is good for football, isn't it? Having America's team being one of the best, if not the best, in the NFL. Yeah, they're in the conversation. They're not the best. They're in the team picture right now, and it's still early. We're only about a third of the way or so through the season, or a little more than a third. So. I never, I'm not one of those, I know what teams' identities are after six weeks, but I've seen teams fold up their tent, and I've also seen teams get hot. But, yeah, I think it is good because the great teams, not only those people that like to like them, but there's plenty of people that like to hate them, and the Cowboys are one of those teams. But for the first time in a long time, they went into the season getting no publicity, getting very minimal, everybody laughing at them, and they've almost, instead of, like, fight back, I just said, let's just take care of our business. Let's refocus. Let's keep things in the locker room. Let's build up this wall. I always think great teams are secretive is not the right word, but great teams are guarded. Right. And you don't really know what's going on. And I like that. And the Cowboys have that going for them, unlike many of the years in the past. Right. They're, they're sneaky good. That's how I like to call yeah, them. Yeah, they sure are. That's like the golfer who's about 5'10", 100, PGA Tour player is about 5'10", 165, 170 pounds. You stand at the first tee box with them and you're 6'5", 230, and you think, dang, I know Sean, I'm going to blow by him. You hit first, bam, you hit it out there 290, and then this dude comes up and hits 320. And you say, and those are the guys we call sneaky long by looking at him. You say, nah, the, the, the cosmetic part of it doesn't, it doesn't fit. And then, he, then you're hitting first the rest of the time because he's blowing balls by you on a regular basis. Same thing at the Cowboys. Cosmetically, defense, not a lot of names. Are they that good? Huh. And then all of a sudden, they jump up on you and they beat you. They punch you in the mouth about four times. And before you know it, they're five and one. Right, and people are going to keep thinking that they're going to implode and probably look past them the whole season. That would be my prediction. So let's um. And, and, and you know what? Real quick about that, you make a good point. The thing that's interesting about that is, and people will when they're six and one or six and two, and they, they could get beat by the Giants this week. But what happens is that the people keep waiting and keep waiting, and it will happen. They're going to lose a the game. They're going to get beat. They're going to play poorly. The question is, does it faster and you lose three or four? Or do you get back right? Hey, Seattle lost. Is anybody worried that the Seattle Seahawks aren't good? No. We're going to be okay. But, yes, people are always going to keep wondering when you don't have superstar names on both sides of the ball, every position, people are going to question that. But eventually, the Cowboys, the, the bottom line is you still got to play on, on whether it's Sunday or Monday night, and you still got to tee it up. So, really, it doesn't matter what you and I think. It matters how they respond. Right. All right, we are continuing our conversation with Yahoo Sports Radio's Sean Salisbury. Let's talk about Jameis Winston just for a second. A year ago at this time, he was the projected, when he was eligible, number one draft pick, best player in college football, wins the Heisman Trophy, wins a national championship. Since then, um, if there was a trophy for knuckleheadedness, he would certainly be the winner. Is all of this, all of his antics hurting his draft status, or are that just people just blowing hot air that no matter what he does off the field, he's consensus number one, number one next season. With the sensitivity of this day and age, the off the field problem, at no time 
ever during a, during a season or an off season we had more focus on good guys or bad guys, you know, doing it right, and it's been awful. And there was a couple weeks there, about three weeks for it was about as bad as I've ever seen at the NFL with all the nonsense going on with child abuse and domestic violence. And that's got to stop. Now, he, he's like Teflon, and nothing seems to stick with him. Um, I, I think there's going to be teams that are going to not want to make him the pay for this franchise. They just don't trust him. And there's going to be teams, there's going to be, we only six one to like you. I personally am not a fan. Is he a winner? Yes. Is he a big body? Yes. Is he on the most talented team in America? Yes. I wonder if James Winston was playing for the University of Indiana, University of Indiana how much we'd be talking about him. That, that's my point. Right. If Marcus Mariota was at Florida State, they'd still win all those games. If, 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 uh, if James Winston's at UCLA, they're not any better than they are right now. Right. So, do I think you've do I think you've got a lot of potential? Yes, and they're an actual winning. Of course, he's a good player. But I do know some NFL people who talk to him that are not are not they wouldn't take him in the first round. Right. For his on the field, for, forget his off the field. And right. I've watched damn near every throw he's made in the last two years. He's a long strider. He's a semi-slow footed. Now he's not real quick feet. Mm-hmm. He's a big wind up guy. He. He uh, has a big old windup like Byron Leftwich in his motion now. Do some guys care? Some may not. Right. Mechanically, he needs another year. He mechanically needs to stay in school for another right. year after this. But, you know, that's not going to happen with all the trouble that surrounds it and stuff. He's going to get out and go to the riches. And somebody's going to take him high because he's a big potential. You can work with that. And I get it. I like three or four guys better than him in the country already right now. I, 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 there's four or five quarterbacks I like more than him. And somebody's going to take him high, and we'll see. Um, I think he's. Do I think he's a bona fide franchise quarterback? Absolutely not. Yeah, I uh, think that's just on the field. I, there's a lot that would do. Would you like to work with him and do some things and change? Yes. Then, then you have the off the field stuff. He doesn't get it. I don't trust him. Right. And uh, I'm not a big fan. And I have nothing, I've never met the kid. I just go by what I see in here. And what I see in here is not very good. Now, Jimbo Fisher, if you listen to him, James Winston's the greatest fan in the world. Well, he's a head coach, and I get it. But I think you're going to see a lot of people shy away from James Winston for more reasons than just off the field. I don't think a lot of them, I think there's going to be some that don't like him on the field, but the kid's got to wake up. He, he, there's something about him that there's this smirk and there's something about him that is almost as if he's untouchable um, and he's not good enough to approach it untouchable. Good player. I think he's great. No, he's no Andrew Luck. He's no, uh, I, don't, I don't even think he's an RG3. I don't think he's that kind of guy. I mean, he sure is that's not Russell Wilson, but he's got a big body. Right. And with big bodies, there's potential. And with potential, he's got a good team, a high-profile high guy. Somebody will like him. Some won't. Some will want to make him the face of the franchise. Many won't. If I was a general manager, he's a guy I'd stay away from. I think I think even if he wanted to stay in school another year, I don't think Florida State would let him. I think they, so, they want to wash their hands of this guy. No question. There's another part of the guy, that, the talent. Yes, it's great. He won a Heisman Trophy and all that. But it's... You kind of in those meetings in the back room, you're saying, you know what, can't wait till they move on. We don't have to deal with this distraction. Right. I think he's going to be drafted, but I think he's a, going to be a lower round draft pick, which is surprising considering where he's come from. Um, let's just. I wouldn't. 
count on him as a guy that you think is going to be the, one of the top three or four players in the NFL. That's that's just my feeling. Right, and I think that's probably a lot of people's feelings. All right, um, real quick, let's turn to speaking of RG three. Um, he's scheduled to come back real soon for the Redskins. We've already seen that. Kirk Cousins has not been everything that he was advertised. Great backup, but probably that's his future, although we need a bigger sample size. The Redskins season is pretty much lost at this point. Are they, is it worth bringing uh, Griffin back? Because they know what they have in him, or do they need to bring him back? Because Jay Gruden, quite frankly, his job depends on the quarterback decision that he makes. So if you're the Redskins, do you bring him back, or do you leave him on the bench and say, see you oh, next year? I play him when he's healthy. Okay, if he's healthy, you play him. I... Cousins had the chance to pick up that glove on the mound and keep it. And after a few games, we thought he might. And he's turned the ball over too much. And it's been, I didn't expect him to play this poorly at times. Now, I'm not quitting. I think it's still catch. They tend to call 10 miles over broken glass to have him here in Houston. Right. <laughs> play. And Cousins can play. Now, you're right. Some guys are better coming off the bench, like a sixth man in the NBA. And some are made for starters. And then we do need a big body of work for Kirk Cousins. But he had a chance solidify that and keep that job. He did, and he didn't keep it. And now you're if you're Washington, you have to when Griffin comes back say we gotta see what's up. But he needs he needs to play. Not prematurely if he's still hurt, but if he's healthy, he needs to be back on the field and play. He needs experience. He needs to be part of Jay Gruden's offense for for more time. Jay needs to see what he's got going into next year. We need to see more competition those two. It's not exactly like since his rookie year. I mean, he's been missing a lot of football, RG3. There's a lot of question marks. So when he went, when he got hurt, there was, if you remember, there was people saying, hmm, maybe we should make the switch to Cousins. So he, the, the injury just happened to happen. So while competition is there, Cousins has basically given the job back. But I, I don't care if it's one game, six games. If you're the Washington Redskins, you can't approach it. While you and I may look at it different um, and how they should approach it, you can't approach it the six games in the season, it's done. What if they go on a six-game run, and all, all right. of a sudden they have RG3 plays great, and they play lights out, and boom, now they're a game over 500. If the East Latin, the Cowboys lose three in a row, the Giants, hey, they only take nine wins to get in to win or ten wins in that division. So, you know what, I, I play him. I don't care if there's two games left at the end of the season. If he's 100% healthy, I want to see him have a feel-good feeling going into the offseason. I'll play him when he's healthy. If he's healthy, you put him in there and let's see what he's got. Matt, I mean, the two issues are, uh, you're right, you mentioned it, him coming back too early, which seems to be what he does, wanting to prove that he's Superman. And also, that team has bigger problems than just who's at quarterback. So I'm not sure he, even if he comes back, you're looking at the potential of another 2012-like run. That's that's the fear. And he comes back, the team is, especially along the offensive line, has major problems. And then he gets hurt again. Um, that's That, yeah, I think, I is the fear. I can't worry about him getting hurt again. Right. And, and, and you know what? You're right. They do have some far deeper issues than just the quarterback. But I sure as heck don't want to have him healthy for six weeks. Let's say he plays, he's healthy for six weeks. And I got him standing over there on the sideline wondering what I got. Right. Plus, I'd like to have him with that feeling of, okay, let's say he plays the last six weeks. He plays well, but they win a few, lose a few. In the offseason, I got to know what I got to work on. And remember, it's Dave Gruden's first year there. Right. So learning that new offense. You can learn it on the chalkboard all you want. But you have to apply it on Sundays, and the, the second Robert Griffin comes back, when he's 100% healthy, I don't care where we are in the season, he needs to get under center. Right. The, the joke around D.C. is that uh, Cousins switched his number to eight this season, which was Rex Grossman's number, which is what Cousins seems to be turning into. So that jinx number has to go. Maybe number 12, like somebody else I know wore, once famously wore, maybe that would improve his performance. 
out of here on this. I follow you on Twitter. I noticed you've said some things about the upcoming World Series, Kansas City and San Francisco. You got a uh, a prediction going a little off the rails for you there a bit off of football? You know, not off the rails. You know this. I'm a bigger baseball and basketball fan than I am a football fan. I didn't play football until I got to high school, so I've grown up and I'm the history of baseball and basketball and as a fan, I'm a bigger fan than I am football. So this World Series intrigues me. I know the ratings and Fox, people hate it because it's boring. It's not high scoring, and oh my gosh, it's too good a pitching. We want ten to, you know, we want ten to nine games, and we want, you know, back to back to back home runs and all those things. And right. Small market Kansas City, and all those things. Okay, I get it, but this is good baseball. It's like a uh, six to three defensive struggle where teams are beating each other up in football, or a San Antonio. They're the San Antonio Spurs. That's what we're getting. Right. That's a great and analogy. A caliber team that just kind of that they play defense that are kind of boring. They just did three or four. They got three Hall of Famers on their roster, but we don't ever talk about them as Hall of Famers. Just kind of like, hold on, make me yawn, and then win an NBA title because they do it the right way with the best coach in the world. Right. On top of it. So, you know what? I look at them. Both teams can play small ball. Both teams run pretty well. They they can they, they can pitch lights out, timely hitting. Apparently, they both from the postseason know how to get timely home runs, even though the big boppers aren't in the lineup. The the, the Giants have an unbelievable experience in even years. You know, that the, the 2010-2012 World Series of sweep in 2012 with Detroit. This is, they're really good. And then Kansas City seems like they're so naive that they haven't been there since They're just playing and not worried about what the rest of the world thinks. And the Moustakas and the Hosmers are living up to being first-round picks. So, I, I, you know what? They're, they're mirror images when we talk about how they play, for the most part. But to me, it comes down to, while Ned Yost is undefeated in the postseason, Bochy's the best manager in baseball. Now, I know manager doesn't play, but I always give a National League manager an advantage in a series like this for one reason. Is that they, have to, they don't have the DH, and the, they don't get to manage that way all year long. And I know National League Parks, American League Parks, and I know that you still got to hit and play, and Ned's done a good job, and I'm not saying he's not a good manager, and Buck Showalter's a hell of a manager. But to me, knowing when to double switch, when to run, when, to, when, when things aren't going well for your team, that's when the manager must, you know, those, those types of key situations. So, right. so there's a big part of me. There's, there's a part of me I'm pulling for the Royals. And Bochy's my friend. I think Bochy's, I love Bochy. I love the way he manages, and I love San Francisco history baseball. But you know what? How can you not root for the, for the Royals? I mean, 85, this will be the third World Series in even years for the Giants that they win. For me, I think it'd be awesome to see a Kansas Royals team that we don't know. See, if you went around and asked 90% of the country that doesn't follow baseball, not only who's in the World Series, maybe five players on the World Series, they couldn't. And I think that's kind of cool. But we love superstars. That's why people aren't going to talk about it much and are bored with it. But you know what? I kind of like the underdog. I, I don't care who wins, really. They're both my type of guys. But there's a deep part of me that pulls for, for uh, Kansas City. 
I'm pulling for Kansas City. I think San Francisco probably wins at the six. Right. But I'm, I, don't, I, I don't know if the momentum can continue, but if it does, I'll be the first to stand up to cheer for the Royals. Right, and you said... So I, like, so I like Bochy's managerial moves, so I think he's pretty special. Yeah, Bochy is great. I mean, you said that um, managers don't play, but as we've seen like with the Nationals and Matt Williams, they certainly have an impact, and people are talking about managerial moves. Fox has a bona fide superstar, too, in Buster Posey. I mean, they can... Yeah, yeah he's... exactly, but nobody talks about it. Right. He's not a flash. He's not a... Well, he's like Tim Duncan. Right. He's not a flash superstar. He just does it. He keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't... He's not a self-promoter. You don't see him on a lot of national commercials. He just takes care of his business. Oh, Posey's a star. Maybe the best all-around catcher in baseball. Problem is, we, he doesn't talk about it. He, we just kind of let... He is, he's the equivalent of Tim Duncan... In baseball, and you make a great point because about managers is and part of the reason why I lean towards Bochy. Think right. about the court. Mike Matheny's done a hell of a job in St. Louis. He sure has. He happened to fill Tom, Tony LaRusso's shoes. But think about the move uh, when it comes down to it. Do you go with Michael Walker or don't you? After right. his first two pitches at 95 and 98 miles an hour, you're thinking, hmm, good have Michael Walker back. Right. Was it the right time after a long layoff to put him in under that circumstance after his great postseason last year? Was it smart? But the going to be questioned all off season, and that's when managerial moves are at the most uh, at a premium. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, Sean Salisbury. You can reach him at uh, at Sean Unfiltered. Give him a follow on Twitter. It's worth it. Sean, my friend, thank you very much for showing up today and uh, giving me a few minutes of your time. Anytime, my man. Keep up the great work. Always a pleasure, and keep doing your thing. Good uh, to be with you. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right. That was Sean Salisbury. Thrilled, and I mean thrilled. To have that man on our show, hopefully we can get him to uh, spare some time and be with us again um, real, real soon. Remember, you can always follow him at Sean Unfiltered and get yourself the Yahoo Sports Radio app and listen to him 3 to 7 on the Prime Cut Show with John Granado. All right, um, last thing I want to get to before we dive headfirst into the QSR spotlight is a little baseball yak. When I had Chris Morelli on the show... Several weeks ago, um, we well, not I'm going to throw him under the bus. He predicted uh, Detroit and the Dodgers, and both those teams, as you know, um, are no longer playing in the postseason. As of the recording of this, it's going to be the Kansas City Royals taking on the San Francisco Giants. Um, we all had that wrong. In fact, a lot of people had this one wrong. I'm not sure many people. Well, I'm sure people predicted the Giants would make it to the World Series. It's an even-numbered year, and that's what they do every other year. They get to the series and win it. But I don't think many people predicted the Kansas City Royals making it this far. And I just want to take a second and look at how the Royals did it. Because I think what they're showing is the real recipe for postseason success is exactly what the Royals are throwing out there, and that is small ball, okay starting pitching, innings eating starting pitching, a great bullpen, and that's the recipe. Because when you get this far, and let's contrast this to the disappointing seasons of the Baltimore Orioles, the Washington Nationals, the Los Angeles Angels, okay, St. Louis Cardinals, and when I say disappointing, it's disappointing because those seasons are done. And the Royals and the Giants are still playing. And they're not really mirror images of each other, but they kind of, sort of, play the same sort of approach. But I want to focus mostly on the, the Royals at this point. Teams that, that survive the 162-game season, where games are up and down, meaningful, meaningless, where they hit a lot of home runs, 
and they live and die by the home run, or they live and die by their starting pitching, that gets you so far. I mean, you look back at the Braves of the 90s, who at their 14th straight division uh, championships and one World Series to show for, and they arguably had the best starting rotation in the game and only could muster one World Series victory. Because I think what the Royals are showing us is that the key to success in the postseason is you're facing great pitching, and it's a compressed season into seven games, five games in the early rounds. And over the 162-game stretch, when you're playing a semi-meaningless game in July, all right, your great pitching is going to keep the other team in check. You can club a few home runs then here and there against number five starter. But you get down to this point, this point in the playoffs, your starting pitching has to eat innings just to get you to that bullpen. And you got to figure out how to manufacture runs against almost equally good starting pitching. You're not going to club many home runs when you're facing the two or three top starters of the other team and then a great bullpen. The home run is almost negated by great starting pitching. So what are you going to do? That was my hand hitting my leg face warning what that pounding sound was. What are you going to do? You're going to have to manufacture runs and... How many runs did the Kansas City Royals, and yes, I'm bitter because they beat my beloved Orioles, but how many runs did the Kansas City Royals create from infield hits and errors and steals and sacrifice bunts? That's how you win. You scrape and you claw your way to runs. You might catch a pitcher on a bad day and knock a few out of the park, but you got to figure out how to do it when you're down in the ninth inning, and you haven't been able to put the bat on the ball much, you got to figure out how to make runs. I mean, baseball is a great sport in terms of being able to make something out of nothing. In game four against the Orioles, the Royals against the Orioles, the Orioles had, it's the top of the ninth. They're down to their last three outs. Three outs of the season, it turns out. Adam Jones... Gets a walk. He's on first base. Nelson Cruz comes up. And instead of swinging, laying down a bunt, which nobody would expect, instead of hitting behind Jones, which, again, the man is uh, amongst the leaders in the major leagues in home runs. He clubbed a ton this year. You're not expecting that from, from the big bopper himself. He's swinging for the fences. And he pops out weakly to the infield and moves uh, Jones to second on a fielder's choice. Or, I'm sorry, excuse me. He gets to first on a fielder's choice, and Jones is out at second base. So instead of having Jones in scoring position at second base with one out, now you've got Nelson Cruz on first base with one out, and that changes the whole theme, the whole tenor, the whole attitude, the whole situation. I mean, you've got to manufacture runs. That's what October is all about. Because you can't look back at your 162-game season, your 162-game marathon, and say we're going to play the exact same way because all these games count. All these games count. Every game you're backed into a corner. Every single game. So no one should be too surprised by what the Royals are doing. They're doing it the way you're going to have to do it. Manufacturing runs, great bullpen, starting pitching that gets you at least five or six innings. Because, folks, once you hand it over to the Kansas City bullpen, it slights out. It's it's over for you. When the seventh and eighth and ninth inning, you're done. 
against that bullpen. Finished. So let's also do this before we get to the QSR spotlight. Can we finally put to bed the old chestnut about needing playoff experience to win uh, in the playoffs in October? The Royals have no playoff experience. The Royals last made it to the playoffs in 1985. Many people on the Royals team weren't even alive in 1985, and yet here they are in the World Series. Playoff experience or lack of experience didn't seem to help them much. When people talk about the flameout that was the Washington Nationals season, they say to them, well, maybe the moment was too big. The moment was too big. I love that expression. The moment was too big. You know, the Royals were just in the, um, excuse me, the Nationals were just in the playoffs a couple of years ago. So it can't be that big. And again, looking across the river at the American League, the Royals have no playoff experience to, to draw on. No one, I mean, there's very few people on that team that have any playoff experience, and certainly it wasn't with the Royals. And yet that moment wasn't too big for them. They're smoking victory cigars as American League champions, and no one's saying to them, oh, the moment was too big for you. So the moment is never too big. Playoff experience is one of those highly, highly overrated excuses. You know, baseball is baseball. If you can play baseball from April to September, you can play in October. The game hasn't changed. Are you mentally capable of handling the pressures of October? I believe you are. So let's not use that as an excuse anymore, saying, well, this team's going to do better because they have the experience. You know, sometimes you just have better talent. You have a better manager. You have a better strategy, but let's not use the moment was too big or playoff experience. Okay, my friends, it is time for your favorite food moment of the podcast, the QSR Spotlight, which is brought to us by the Junk Food Guy and his fabulous, fabulous blog, junkfoodguy.com. You should check it out. You can follow him on Twitter at junkfoodguy and... Check out his podcast on iTunes, The Nosh Show. And, of course, I like it because it has some Yiddish in the title. All right, um, let's start with this um, from our good friends at the CSPnet.com. Uh, for those of you who like beef jerky or think that beef jerky is still a niche snack, um, I would just like to bring this horrifying stat to your attention. Between 2009 and September of this year, total dollar sales in the category of uh, beef jerky uh, it grew from $1.58 billion to $2.5 billion. So we're spending over $2 billion on beef jerky. I want that to sink in just for a second. We're spending billions of dollars on beef jerky. Um, our good friends at McDonald's have hired Mythbusters co-host Grant Imahara, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, to answer customer questions. So, and I don't mean customer questions like, um, do you want fries with that? And which milkshake is the best with the filet of fish But rather, uh, this will be part of the Our, quote, Our Food, Your Questions campaign. And customers will be able to access Imahara versus social, versus Avaya social media, Twitter and Facebook. And ask questions like, is there pink slime in any of the food? And is your food even real? If you're wondering what the pink slime is, it's a horrifying concoction that Jamie Oliver discovered about McDonald's. You can, um, on your Google machines, uh, type in Jamie Oliver pink slime and watch an incredibly horrifying video. Um, but yeah, McDonald's is doing this. That should raise a red flag in people's um, 
minds that when a, a fast food place is hiring a MythBuster to answer these kinds of questions, they've had some problems lately. And that's what that says to me, and they would like to rehabilitate themselves. So you may want to try a different fast food restaurant um, for the time being. All right, I, we, um, we here at the Bitterness and Rage Show are not um, insensitive to the current Ebola panic, the Ebola crisis. And I have another victim here. No, not a human being, um, but chocolate. Yes, chocolate. If, if Ebola hasn't piqued your curiosity by now, this one will make you steaming mad about this potential epidemic. Chocolate prices apparently have gone up more than expected thanks to Ebola. According to NPR, chocolate bars like Hershey's Milk Chocolate have already increased, or the price has already increased by 5 to 10 cents and may continue to do so as Halloween approaches. Now, what NPR would like you to know is that you cannot contract Ebola from eating or handling chocolate. That is not what's causing the prices to go up, the fear that chocolate is going to be like Typhoid Mary. However, the price hike is really a fear of um, Ebola spreading to the Ivory Coast, causing cocoa farmers to move and to avoid exposure. So please don't stop eating chocolate, friendos, because of the Ebola virus. Ebola just may cause more or fewer and fewer supplies. suppliers. It's easy for you to say, making the price go through the roof. All right. Um, as you know, I rail in seemingly every podcast about the fall-themed food items. And Carvel, uh, Carvel, they closed the Carvel near me. That was a very, very sad day. But Carvel was rolling out some Halloween-themed treats for Halloween. Uh, pumpkin pie Sunday dashers, layers of pumpkin soft serve ice cream. Uh, that just sounds nasty, by the way. Pumpkin soft serve ice cream. Marshmallows, graham cracker crust, top whipped cream, and graham cracker crumbles. Pumpkin pie shakes and hand scooped pumpkin pie ice cream. Pumpkin pie ice cream might not be so bad, but pumpkin flavored soft serve? Enough. I love Halloween too, but you're ruining it for me with all this pumpkin Michigas. Uh, Subway Canada. Those of you that think that Canada is behind the United States, um, Subway Canada has begun offering, as of the 1st of October, a new prime rib melt made with 100% Canadian beef tossed in au jus glaze and topped with cheddar cheese and Italian bread. Why is that not here in the United States? Come on. Don't let Canada beat us. It used to be don't let the communists win. Don't let the Canadians win on this one. Please, I'm begging you. Um, and this little tidbit, which comes to us straight from uh, the junkfoodguide.com page. I said I wouldn't cry, but this is quite miraculous. And just in time for the birthday of a great American, which is coming up at the end of this month, Philadelphia cream cheese. You know it, you love it. With its strawberry, its honey pecan... It's salmon-flavored, chive, onion-flavored. I'm getting all emotional just thinking about this. Their newest offering is bacon. I'm going to get real close to the microphone. Bacon-flavored cream cheese. Bacon-flavored cream cheese. I just, I just, you know what? Excuse me for a second. Sorry, I, I had to compose myself. 
because I was feeling myself shedding tears. Um, Bacon-flavored cream cheese, which has in it um, tiny bits of bacon mixed in. Yes, I mean, what could be better? It's cream cheese. It's bacon. It's everything you could want in breakfast smeared on your bagel. Delicious. Delicious. I- I'm, I'm going to try to compose myself for the rest of the show, Graham. Okay, finally, that brings us to the Bitterness and Rage show Dope of the Week. And today's Dope of the Week is none other than the forgotten man, the lonely, the sad. The man is like, how come everybody's gone to Cleveland except me? Miami Heat forward center Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh has recently said that he holds no hard feelings towards LeBron James. No hard feelings. That he's... He's moved on with his life, and he doesn't hold a grudge, and he holds no hard feelings. So let me just say this, and and I'm going to put this as succinctly, as politely as possible to Chris Bosch. Chris, you are a dope. A dope. Of course you have no hard feelings. You are the man who won the NBA's version of the career lottery. Yes, you were a great player with the Toronto Raptors, a team going absolutely nowhere, with not much talent around it. You became an all-star because you were the big fish in the little pond. And then LeBron James allowed you to ride his coattails to three, excuse me, three, he wishes, two NBA championships and four finals appearances in a row. You've gotten your rings, you've gotten your fame and your glory from LeBron James. And yes, he's now gone to Cleveland. You are the big dog in Miami now. Hope you can handle it. You got a lot of guys named Chris Anderson sticking around to play in Miami. Yeah, you've got Dwayne Wade, who if you get 25 good games out of him, will be nothing short of miraculous. You're the man down there. Now it's your team. So I hope you can handle it. But of course you'd have no hard feelings toward LeBron James. You should have a LeBron James poster in your room on the ceiling. Every night you lay in bed, you look at it and go, thank you. Thank you for giving me a career. Thank you for making me much more famous than I deserve to be. So of course you hold no hard feelings. You owe the man everything you are. So don't act tough. And don't act like you can, you're okay without him and that you never needed him. Of course you needed him. I got news for you, Seabosh. It's not him, it's you. In that old breakup parlance where you say, it's not me, it's not you, it's me, it's you. It's you, trust me, it's you. And you can say all you want about Kevin Love, more sour grapes about Kevin Love adjusting, quote unquote, to his new role with, with LeBron James by his side. Sour, sour grapes. I wish I had the sound effect of a baby crying, but I don't, so we'll move on with our lives. So. Chris Bosch, for being a total schmuck about this whole situation, you, yes, you, are the Bitterness and Rage Show Dope of the Week. And speaking of dopes, I'm running out of time. I'm looking at the show clock again, and whoo, boy, as I said, another jam-packed showgram. So it's been a pleasure. Um, this is our first show since I got on iTunes, so please go to iTunes. Check out the show. Leave a super-duper quality, nice, loving, hallmark sort of card uh, comment about me. You can find me at Bitter and Rage on the Twitter machines. 
bitternessandrage at gmail.com. That's how you can send all of your fan mail. You can still find the show at bitternessandrage.podbean.com, but that's the more complicated way, so just stick with iTunes, if you would. Um, it's been a pleasure, a guilty pleasure, as always. Um, don't ever forget that the Bitterness and Rage show is a Miyasoti Cologne production, and... See you on the other side, Ray. Ray.